So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 133. I'm going to be reading that in just a moment. Let me say a few words first. You may not know this, but uh, I'm a big fan of comic strips. Uh, and they're the first things that I that I read in the morning, uh, in the morning paper. Then I go from that to I read the sports page. And then finally, somewhat reluctantly, I turn to all the depressing negative news uh, on the front page. So... One of my favorite comic strips is Mother Goose and Grimm. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's in the daily paper, but it is in the, in the Sunday paper. Uh, if you're familiar with the comic strip, you'll remember that Mother Goose is, she's sort of the head of the household and Grimm is her dog. Uh, he has this great big bulbous nose. I'm sure you recognize him. And one episode, uh, one episode that I remember shows this, uh, Big St. Bernard dog. And he's talking to Grimm and he says to Grimm, I'm a St. Bernard. What are you? And Grimm looks at him and he smugly replies, I think I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> well, Psalm 133 is basically about St. Bernards and Presbyterians and how we should relate to each other. Except in this case, the St. Bernards are really other Christians, brothers and sisters in our own church and in other churches who perhaps think a little bit differently than we do. You know, Psalm 133 has been sung at Presbyterian General Assembly for probably, I don't know, close to 500 years now. And if you've ever been to a Presbyterian General Assembly, you'll know why it needs to be sung there. Because unity is not something that Presbyterians are, are known for. You've probably heard the old saying, I've probably said it here before, that Presbyterians are a lot like hickory. They're good wood, but they split a lot. Uh, and there's more than a little truth to that. You know, it used to be said that if the Scots couldn't find somebody to fight, they'd fight one another. And that national characteristic has apparently followed Presbyterians down through the decades and, and centuries of history. But perhaps in faith and as a, an ideal, typically our General Assembly closes every year, as it did a couple of weeks ago in Greensboro, North Carolina, with the singing of this psalm in metrical version, which is an aspiration that we all have in our church families. You know, there's nothing like unity, is there? Uh, discord in a church, it's a drag. It's a big drag on everyone. And it's certainly not something that the Lord, the Lord ever intended. Unity is God's design for His church. You know, in the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, May they, Christians, be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. So I think as we, as we experience the sense of disagreement and conflict and disharmony, which often swirls around, I think we value unity very highly. You know, just look at the news. 
We live in a time when there's a great polarization in our communities, in our nation, tragically even in our churches. People can't seem to get along. And I think all that disunity makes us value unity and agreement and concord all the more. It makes us wistfully look back to times when we've experienced more communal and national unity and church unity. If you've ever been in a congregation where there was dissension and disunity and disagreement or a church split, you know firsthand what a great blessing it is to experience unity and peace. And David is talking about this in this passage. You know, this is a, a psalm of a sense. Pilgrims sang it on their way up to Jerusalem, to the three great festivals of, of Passover, of weeks, and booths or tabernacles. And except during these three feasts, most Jews were away from Jerusalem. They were away from the temple. They were away from the name of God. And they yearned to be in the place of God's name, in the place where they could receive God's blessing. And I think you can just imagine, you know, the joy, the ecstasy of these pilgrims as they marched up to Jerusalem singing this song, marveling about Zion and anticipating the intense collective religious blessing that they were to have in the temple. Now, we don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm. John Calvin thinks he wrote it right after the Lord had finally given Israel into his hands and he had become the king over a unified Israel. And that makes pretty good sense to me. We don't know. The psalm doesn't tell us exactly when David wrote it, but we do know that David knew a lot about disunity. Therefore, he could highly prize unity when it finally came. And that's what he does in this psalm. And after we pray, we're going to give close attention to this psalm. So let's go to the Lord and pray, ask him to help us understand this. Heavenly Father, we ask for your wisdom as we come to your word this morning. It's so easy for us, I think, to call up in our hearts deep, and emotional wounds of dissension and disunity in our experience. And it's very likely that when we do, we will think in particular of others who have been the cause of those wounds and the perpetrators of that disunity. But today, we would search our own hearts. We acknowledge that unity does not simply happen and that we ourselves have been disruptors of the unity that you intend as a blessing upon your people. So convict us, Lord, even while you encourage us. Open our eyes to search deeply into our own hearts and find if there is any unclean thing in us, and then lead us straight away to the cross. Now bless the reading and hearing of your word. Get all the glory for it. And do our souls everlasting good because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. Hear it. Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 
It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Psalm 133. 68 beautiful and profound words, I think, which speak volumes about the beauty and the benefits of people living together in unity. They literally scream out to the church across the years of history to heed their call to unity. Nowhere has the nature of true unity been more faithfully described or gracefully illustrated as in this short psalm. David, the author of this psalm, he knew something personally and intensely about the blessing of unity. He also knew that it's a precious, even rare commodity. Think with me for just a little bit about David's life. We all know the great story of David and Goliath, learned probably for the first time in vacation Bible school, when David won that great victory over the uncircumcised champion of Gath. But that victory didn't bring David the experience of unity. It brought him jealousy directed to him from King Saul because the women, if you recall, began to sing what? They sang, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. Do you think Saul liked that song? No. And thus began this sad career in which David, at first hand, he saw how jealousy and envy could pull apart a court, and eventually could pull apart a family. You know, David had lived in the wilderness, seeking refuge from Saul, from those who were supportive of Saul's reign, and he had seen dissension at first hand during this time. And then David had been involved in what was a long civil war in Israel. He had lived through a civil war as a leader of one side of that conflict. But that civil war, it was doubly deadly because it wasn't just a civil war. It was a holy war. Each side really dug in. You know, each side thought that the other was the usurper of God's rule. And so not only was there a conflict that divided brothers, but there was a spiritual conflict in Israel. And David knew the horrors of that kind of dissension. And when God finally brought Israel together, made him king, we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that David realized that it was the Lord who had done this. Now, he realized that no human being could have brought that country together after that civil war. So, I don't know, maybe it was in this context that David thought about the blessing of unity. He knew so much about disunity. He knew so much about the envy and the jealousy that rips apart that he could greatly appreciate the blessings of peace and concord. To be sure, 
No one has ever overestimated the blessings of peace and concord in all the relations of life. But this morning, we need to clearly hear this. We need to clearly hear these things are easily taken away. And they are easily broken apart by unthinking people. So in this psalm today, David celebrates the blessing of peace and concord, the joy of unity. And I'd like for us to take a look at it in three parts. Uh, So if you could look at your outline, I think they're in the bulletin. The first part that you'll see is in verse 1. There David ascribes two very important qualities to unity. Then in verse 2, in the first part of verse 3, he expresses the blessing of unity by two marvelous illustrations. And then finally, third and finally, in the last part of verse 3, he explains that unity is poured out by God. It's something that's initiated by God. It's given by God. It's gifted by Him. So let's spend some time this morning looking at those three things together. First of all, David tells us in verse 1 two aspects of unity. He attributes two qualities to unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. In other words, David tells us it's not just pleasant. It's not merely pleasing to experience unity. It's actually good. You know, we all know that there are some things that we pursue in life that are pleasant, but they're not good for us. And you fill in the blank. You know, you know what those things are in your life that are maybe pleasant, but aren't good for you. Well, David says here that unity is not one of those things. That unity is both pleasant and good. Unity has a more, the moral quality of goodness about it. It's good to experience unity. And so David pauses and he announces here that it's both good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. And again, it's so important for us to remember that this good and pleasant unity is fragile. It can very easily be broken, fractured. You know, unity can be taken apart in a church in a heartbeat by gossip and slander, jealousy, anger, pride backbiting, nosiness, envy, revenge, and even sins like adultery and fornication. Consider adultery. It's pretty clear, I think, how adultery could bring disunity in a marriage. But adultery can even bring disunity in a church. You know, a pastor told me once of a woman in his church. She was a mother of five children. She was married to a policeman, a godly family. You know, they were at church every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night prayer meetings, Bible studies. And then one day, she simply decided that she no longer loved her husband and she had an affair. And the affair not only broke up her family, It ended up almost breaking up the church. 
And I think you can see that because people took sides. Some didn't respect the way the elders dealt with the situation. And it set families against families. Sin brings disunity. And not just those sins that are directly poised to strike at unity, but those that bring collateral damage to unity. You know, I remember in one of my pastor's sermons, Pastor Phil Cruz over at at Rincon Mountain, I don't remember the specific text, but I do remember he said that sin, sin is not an isolated thing. When I sin, it doesn't just impact me. I'm not sinning on an island. My sin impacts those around me. My personal family impacts my church family. Sin brings disunity. So David, who knows a lot about disunity and discord, he pauses here. And he says, we need to appreciate the goodness and the pleasantness of unity. Never take it for granted because it is so, so easily fractured. Then David goes on, and he gives us two illustrations, two similes of unity, and you see those in verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. The first illustration in verse 2 comes from the priesthood. It comes from the sacrificial ritual. David says that the blessing of unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, the oil for the anointing of the high priest, it was a special mixture of oil and aromatic spices, and it was used only for anointing. It wasn't used for common purposes. And the high priest, Aaron, was expressly anointed with it, but his sons, other priests, were only sprinkled. And so we see here the picture of the high priest being anointed with this special oil. The oil is poured on the top of his head. It runs down the sides of his head and his cheeks and down into the collar of his robe. It's a picture of blessing being poured out as the priest has offered the sacrifice. And the robe is on his head. The robe is now filled with fragrant perfume from the precious oil of anointing. I'm sure most of you or some of you know Dr. Ligon Duncan. Dr. Ligon Duncan is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, and he once told me this story. He said when he was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, he was just sitting in his study one day, and one of the ruling elders came running in and said he was on his way to serve at Vacation Bible School, and he said, Ligon, do you have any aqua belva? And Pastor Duncan said, no but I have Old Spice. And the ruling elder said, that'll do. And off he went into the bathroom, and he came out, and Dr. Duncan was a little confused. He said, you know, what's that all about? And the man said, he said, well, I have to wear this shirt at Vacation Bible School, and it's been in my car a couple of days, and it's pretty ripe. And I don't want the ladies who have to sit next to me smell this shirt. So he anointed the shirt with Old Spice. That may not be the best illustration. That that was the only one I could think of. But I think that's pretty much the same kind of word picture that we have here in verse 2. You know, the high priest, you know, he was involved with some pretty dirty and smelly and bloody and, 
and messy business with that sacrificial system back then. But that oil, which anointed his head, flowed down the side and around even his collar, touching his garments. It was filled with this pleasing aroma. It countered the, the other displeasing aromas which would have surrounded him as he conducted the sacrifices on the altar. And then the illustration suddenly changes here. Look at the first part of verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Suddenly we're in the mountains. And David's talking about Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was the tallest mountain in Israel. It was a mountain which was notorious for having these extraordinarily heavy dews. And Mount Hermon was blessed because of those heavy dews that God had poured out. Flourishing vegetation, plants, trees, fauna grew there because of that dew. And so I think these two word pictures, we see pictures of the blessing and the benefits of unity. The blessing that God pours out is unity. And unity is a blessing that he pours out on his people. And I think that that's the third thing that I want us to see here in the last part of verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So what's David telling us here? Well, I think he's emphasizing that the Lord is the one who has commanded this blessing of unity. In other words, it's poured out on us by God. That is his design for the church. You know, the book of Ephesians says that God doesn't tell us to create unity. He doesn't ever tell us that. But he does tell us to preserve it. And only God can create unity. God has given us unity. He's given us union and communion with Jesus Christ. It's not our job to create that. We can't create that. But it is our job to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God creates unity in his church. He gives the unity. And dear ones, it's our job never to disrupt it. Not to break up the unity. Not to take the unity for granted. But to do those things, make those choices that maintain the unity of the body of Christ. And so here David is emphasizing that it's the Lord who has commanded this blessing. And look at what David says here. He says here, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Look at that word there. You know, Where's the there? So look back at the last word of the first sentence of verse 3. There is Zion. The Lord has commanded unity there. Now, is that significant? Well, you know, if Calvin is right, and David is writing this psalm after the Lord has established him as king, if you recall, it was during this time that David made Jerusalem, Mount Zion, his capital. And this was also the time, you recall, that when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And so now not only is the king's throne in Jerusalem, but but God's tabernacle is also in Jerusalem. So the throne of God and the throne of the king are brought together. And there's a, there's a symbol of God's presence 
right in the midst of his people where David and his heirs are going to rule. So I think what David is pointing out is that it's God who has brought unity to Israel, just like he did earlier in 2 Samuel 5. There in Jerusalem, which is built on Mount Zion, God has given the blessing of unity. It's, it's a blessing of unity which has been so elusive from Israel in all the years before that. There had been disunity, if you recall, in the days of the judges. There had been disunity in the days of Saul. Disunity in the days of the Civil War. But finally, the Lord had brought an unprecedented peace to Israel. And if you go back, you look, the author of Second Samuel emphasized that the Lord gave rest to David from his enemies on all sides. There was an unprecedented peace in Israel in that unity. This rest and peace and unity was God's doing. He commanded it. Israel finally had peace and unity because of what, the God, what God had done. Let me just go down a little side trail here for a moment. You know, Paul, he makes a similar point over in Ephesians chapter 2. You know, he's speaking there in chapter 2 of the church for the very first time. And he says in verses 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, what's Paul telling us here? What, what he's saying is that nothing is so important to a building than a solid, stable foundation. You know, in Jesus' well-known parable of the two house builders in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught the need to build a foundation, what? On, on solid rock and not on shifting sand. Well, on what rock then is the church built? Paul tells us it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. True and lasting unity is the unity built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, not on their persons, It's a unity built on their teaching. It's built on their doctrine. It's a unity built on the revealed truth of God in the Bible centering in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the key element, as you builders know, of any foundation is the cornerstone. It is itself part of. It's absolutely essential to the foundation. It holds the building steady. It sets it. It keeps it in line as the structure, the church, is placed on it. The chief cornerstone of this temple is Christ Jesus himself. He's the one who holds the growing temple together as a unity in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, the unity 
and the growth of the church, they're coupled. And Jesus Christ is the center of both. Unless it's constantly and securely related to Christ, the church's unity simply will not endure. It won't happen. It will disintegrate. And its growth will either stop or it will run amok in some form of discord. So I think that's the point here, the key point that both David and this psalm, Paul and Ephesians makes. There's absolutely no true unity in a church apart from Jesus Christ. And how many churches do we know that Jesus Christ is not the center anymore? It's our relationship to him. It's our dependence upon him that matters. He's absolutely central. He's all important. He's the cornerstone on which unity depends. You know, I have a son who who lives in Kansas. Some of you may know that the state flower of Kansas is the wild native sunflower. My son lives out in the country. Uh, he has a lot of sunflowers on his property. And the sunflower is probably one of the most amazing flowers that God ever created. If you know about sunflowers, you know they literally follow the sun. You know, I haven't personally seen it, but I'm told that if you watch a field of sunflowers, you can see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them in absolute unison follow the sun as it moves across the sky. And something I found out recently, I don't know how it works, is that sunflowers continue tracking the sun's direction even after the sun sets. Isn't that interesting? Through 360 degrees, they ensure that they're always oriented in the direction of the sun. Their unity is totally dependent upon one thing, their relationship with the sun. So it is with the church's unity. It's totally dependent on the church's relationship with the Son of God. Let's go back to David in Psalm 133 for a moment. I want you to to apply something here as we conclude. Don't you think it's a little bit ironic that David, who had experienced so little peace in his early life, and now is so acutely aware of the blessing of peace and unity and is announcing that the Lord has commanded the peace that Israel now experiences in Zion, don't you think it's ironic that David himself will, in short order, destroy this peace in Zion. I think you know the sad story. You know, one morning while his armies are at war, one morning David will get out of bed in this very city of Jerusalem, and he'll look out and he'll see a beautiful woman bathing on the roof of her house. And the choice that he makes that day will lead the Lord to say to him, through one of his prophets, the sword will never depart from your house. And dear ones, that's what happened. It never did depart until the day he died. That choice caused much disunity in his house. 
incredible disunity in his court as the king. But on that same Mount Zion, a thousand years later, the Son of God will die to give us peace. And what does Paul say about him in Ephesians 2.15? Paul says, he himself is our peace. David disrupted the thing that he valued so much in Israel. Dear ones, only Jesus can give it back. So I press this question on you this morning. Are you experiencing a lack of peace and unity in your life this morning? You know, the restoration of that blessing in your experience will begin when you go to Jesus. Because the greatest tension, the greatest disunity, the greatest disease... The greatest lack of peace there is is when you are at enmity, when you're crossways with God. And as much as you try, you can't remedy any of that by yourself. Now, there's only one person that can remedy that. And he did by becoming cursed for us so that we might be united to God through him and united to one another through him. Jesus has broken down the walls of separation in his death on that Mount Zion cross. You know, David, he knew very little of peace in his life. And so he prized it very highly. But he brought much disunity on his people through the choices that he made. You know, you and I are so much like David All of us want peace and unity. I want it. You want it. We crave it. But we need to be honest, I think. None of us deserve peace and unity. Jesus is the only human being who ever lived who does. And yet one day on the cross, he gave up that peace and unity with his Father and the Holy Spirit so that you and I could have a peace that we don't deserve. You see, that's how, that's how much he loves us. You know, I've said this before, but Jesus said to his father, I want to take their place. His father said, son, they don't deserve peace. Jesus said, I know that's true, but I want to take their place. I want to give up my peace so that they might have peace. And be united to you. Be united to me. And be united with each other. And I think we, we really need to ponder that this morning. We, we need to think about this great transaction that took place in heaven between God the Father and God the Son in our behalf. And you see, believing this great transaction, you and I do have the power of the Holy Spirit to resist sin. We can say no to it and instead go out and do good. Strive for peace and unity in the body of Christ. Dear ones, may we always prize Christ's blessing of peace and unity highly. He died in our place that we might be forgiven and have life forevermore. May we hate, may we hate and deplore strife 
in Christ's body. May we mortify those things in us that promote disunity amongst the brethren. May we always foster peace and unity in Christ's body through the choices we make. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we... We do not take the unity that we experience lightly in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our nation, in our church. When we experience peace and unity and agreement, we recognize this is a blessing that only you can give. But we also recognize, Lord, that we can disrupt that unity so quickly and so easily ourselves. Lord, make us careful to study, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Help us to treasure that unity so that in our homes, wives want their husbands to come home. Husbands want to come home to their wives so that children want to be with their parents and parents with their children. So that friends are not ripped apart by disagreements and families are not torn apart by dissension. Lord, so that this congregation experiences the unity which only comes where there's forgiveness and forbearance and a great prize on the blessing of unity. Not a unity at the expense of truth, but a unity amongst brothers. Give us that unity, Lord. Thank you for the way that you've given that unity to us over the years. Give us more of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.